This is The Feed. From Markham. From Richmond Hill. From Vaughn. From Aurora. East Gwillimbury. Whitchurch, Stouffville. From everywhere you are. This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, York University's 87-year-old master's degree grad, a program to retrain Canada's vets, and food bank visits are on the rise. But we begin with vaccinating our kids. On the heels of Pfizer's pediatric shot approval in the U.S. last week, the CDC is now officially recommending that all American children aged 5 to 11 be vaccinated against COVID-19. We, on this side of the border, are expecting the green light from Health Canada relatively soon. But while we wait, we're seeing pushback from some parents and caregivers who are concerned about the possible long-term side effects of the vaccine administered to one so young. Here to offer insight, dispel some of the myths and misconceptions, and put anxious minds at ease is Dr. Janine McCready on behalf of Science Up First. Dr. McCready is an infectious diseases specialist at Michael Guerin Hospital. Dr. McCready, welcome to the feed. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Anne. So what are the concerns that parents and caregivers are letting you know uh, about the pediatric COVID-19 vaccine? I mean, I think anytime something is new, we hear concerns that, you know, is it safe? Will it work? Should I get it for my kids? Are there short-term concerns? Are there longer-term concerns? And when you're making a decision for, you know, someone else, especially your kids, I think parents really want to be absolutely confident uh, that they have the right information to make that decision. So let's answer some of those questions that you just mentioned. So why should a child between 5 and 11 have uh, the COVID-19 variation of the the vaccination that we as adults have had. Yeah, so I mean, to me, when I you know look at this and I'm thinking about the, the population and, and my own kids that are in you know soon to be in that age group and in that age group, I think kind of about a few different things. So one, I think about protecting their health. So you know, luckily in most cases, COVID has been mild in young children, but unfortunately, there have been children that have you know actually passed away from this infection and have been severely ill and been hospitalized. So the vaccine basically will completely prevent that from happening. Happening in in this age group, so that's that's huge. You know, reducing that risk from even a low risk to zero risk is, is very important. Um, it also allows kids, if they're vaccinated, to, to help end this pandemic and move forward and and be able to get back to enjoying all the things they love. So you know, participate in activities, not worrying worrying about school disruptions, and not having to worry about hugging you know friends, family, and worrying about passing anything on to their loved ones. I think that's huge. Um, and then really, you know, protecting the people that are in their local community, their local families, and then in the larger society, really helping us to move forward. So I think those are, are really all the important reasons for this group to, to get vaccinated. One of the things that Science Up First uh, does, and you're a part of that group right now, is it dispels the myths and misconceptions about everything to do with COVID-19, including children and vaccines. So what are some of the misconceptions? What are parents and caregivers really concerned about when it comes to the effects, the long-term effects of this vaccine for kids? 
Yeah. So, I mean, the things that I commonly hear here are, you know, number one, well, what are the long-term effects and, you know, how do we know that nothing will happen? And I think, you know, this vaccine is, is new in kids and it's relatively new in adults and in the 12 plus. So we do have, you know, a few months of data now. But the thing to understand about the vaccines is that, you know, we have a lot of good data over the years about learning about vaccines in general. And for the mRNA technology, which is what Pfizer uses it, it basically, we have, you know, there's been people doing research on that for decades. So it's not something that's brand new that's being rolled out. So we have all of that data over the last number of years. And then thinking about long-term effects for, for vaccines, the mRNA really only stays in your system for maybe at most 72 hours. So any effects that we're going to see should be seen really in that short term, either related to that, which is gone and doesn't stay in your system, it would be very unlikely to have any or almost impossible to have any long-term effects. And then in addition, in terms of your immune response, really that immune response kind of only it happens right after the vaccine and, and probably doesn't increase in, after four to six weeks. So there, it, it doesn't really have any scientific plausibility that there would be any long-term effects. So I think that's you know something to be reassured about. And we have all the data from other vaccines, but there really are no effects from vaccines that we see years down the road. It's just not something that actually uh, happens. Uh, versus from infections, sometimes we can see longer-term effects. And so we don't fully understand the long-term effects of COVID. And certainly that worries me more than any, you know, extremely low risk, theoretical risk from the vaccine. Um, so we hear, you know, the long-term issue, and I do hear from a lot of parents, well, what about fertility issues? So should I get my, you know, my young daughter or my young son that, you know, they'll want to have a baby sometime? I'm worried about puberty. There is, again, no evidence or no reason to be concerned that the vaccine would in any way affect your child's fertility or affect their, you know, when puberty is going to happen and when there's going to be hormonal changes. There's no hormones in the vaccine and there's nothing that would um, that would impact those changes in your child. So in your opinion and the opinion of Science Up First, which is a greater risk, not having the vaccination, the child 5 to 11 years of age, or having the vaccination but weighing and, and balancing what could happen well down the line, which is which puts a child at greater risk? It would be, I mean, 100% without question, I would say not being vaccinated and taking the risk of, you know, getting COVID would be a higher risk for, for children in this age group. And, you know, I say that after reading every possible thing I can about vaccines and about COVID over the last however long we've been in this um, and, you know, being a mom as well. So, you know, it's, it's uh, one thing to read the literature and understand it and, and review it, but, you know, thinking about this as a mother as well and what I'm going to, you know, what I feel safe and what I think is, is important for my kids, I definitely think the risk of not being vaccinated greatly outweighs the benefit. Um, and we, you know, we've seen that when we had the FDA reviewing the, the, the data and then the ACIP in the United States when they, as you said, recommended this vaccine to all 5 to 11-year-olds when they were reviewing the data yesterday. You know, it's very clear from all the data that we have that it's, it's, uh, it's definitely safer to get this vaccine to then to wait and kind of roll the dice and, and, uh, and, and potentially get COVID. To vaccinate or not to vaccinate, that is the question. And it's caused such a strife in families. There have been arguments. There have been, uh, you know, families have, have fallen apart 
if parents are one is vaccinated, the other isn't, neither is vaccinated, both are, when it comes to discussing what they want to do for their children, what's the best way to approach this? If you're a parent or a caregiver and you have questions or concerns about whether you should have your child vaccinated or not, when we get the green light? Yeah, so it's a great question. I think the the most important thing is to make sure that you get the information that you need to make these decisions from from reputable sources. So, I mean, if you don't like, please don't go down the kind of rabbit hole on the internet, and and you know you can kind of end up in very scary places when you go there. But there's you know talk to your pediatrician, talk to your family physician. Uh, the Hospital for Sick Children has actually they've set up a vaccine consult line where people can self refer, call in, have a conversation with. A healthcare professional and have all of their questions answered. Uh, and same thing for adults, uh, they have a clinic like that at Scarborough Health Network called the Vax, Vax Clinic. So you can call in and, and basically have a one-on-one conversation with a physician. But you know, link up with your um, your your healthcare provider and, and have those one-on-one conversations. In addition, places like Science Up First, you know, they have the good data and, and different public health, the public health agencies. We're going to be holding like here in East Toronto, I mean, and it's available online, we're going to be holding a number of forums where people like myself and local, you know, trusted partners and also uh, trusted people, uh, other medical professionals in the community will be able to answer your questions in real time. So, you know, make sure that you actually you know, get those answers and ask people that actually, you know, have looked at all the data and have really um, understand, you know, what this what this decision is all about and how how important that this decision is. Because um, it's, it's, I have those conversations on a daily basis with families and, and with people that are, you know, have been hesitant to get vaccinated. And I, you know, it really it does really make me sad when we see families, you know, torn apart, as you said, or even worse. When, when someone in the family ends up getting severely ill or even passing away because they, you know, had this misinformation that they were subjected to and then they didn't, they weren't able to get vaccinated and now it's too late. And there's, you know, speaking to some of these families, it, it's heartbreaking. You know, they would do anything to go back in time and to, you know, make a different decision. And I really, I, I want every family to have, you know, to have their questions answered so that they feel that they um, can make the, the best decision for them. And, and hopefully that decision includes uh, vaccination for everyone. The COVID-19 vaccine consult service, uh, the Sick Kids line is one 888 Could you also give us information on how people can access what you've got at Science Up First in terms of clarifying this issue? Kids 5 to 11 being vaccinated potentially soon here in Canada. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, Science Up First, as you said, it's kind of a, a national collective of uh, scientists, researchers, healthcare experts, and there's uh, they're they're on social media platforms and the the um, at uh, at Science Up First, and then also there's a website that's www.scienceupfirst.com, and it basically has expert vetted content that is. Um, you know, really the facts and, and, you know, there's no sugarcoating anything. It's just really the, the information that people hopefully need to, to make these decisions. Dr. Janine McCready, thank you so much for joining us. Infectious Diseases Specialist at Michael Guerin Hospital and a mother of young ones. Really appreciate your insights. Thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you so much for having me.
The OMA is urging pregnant women to be fully vaccinated against COVID-19. Tina Cortez with that story. Dr. Constance Nacello is chair of the Ontario Medical Association's section on obstetrics and gynecology. Thanks for your time, Dr. Nacello. Not a problem. Thank you for speaking with me. So why is the rate of COVID-19 vaccines low among pregnant women? Well, I think it, there are a number of reasons that uh, the vaccination rate is low. Um, you know, right at the beginning, pregnant women really weren't sure where they stood as far as vaccination. Um, and what we have uh, um, sorted out is that there's nothing in the, particularly the mRNA vaccines, that is likely to cause a problem in pregnancy. Um, it contains a messenger RNA, and the way that that works is by sending a, a message to the cell to tell it to make a particular protein. And in the case of COVID, it has it make a small piece of the spike protein. And then the messenger RNA uh, is destroyed, and the cell starts to make the protein and sends it to the, uh, the bloodstream. And that's where our antibodies see it as foreign and attack it, and that's how we start making antibodies. Um, so the only thing in the uh, uh, in the actual um, vaccine itself that can be a problem is a substance called polyethylene glycol. Now, polyethylene glycol is a component of many laxatives, but it's also actually used in the manufacture of pills of any kind. So if you actually look in the fine print, you'll find polyethylene glycol. So the, the number of people with a true allergy is really, really rare. Um, so from that, we're hoping to dispel that uh, issue there. But there is nothing in these vaccines that will compromise your DNA at all. That's one of those myths that's floating around out there. Hmm. Uh, the other myth that has been floating around is that the vaccination can cause miscarriage. Well, the chances of any one individual having a miscarriage in the first 12 weeks of pregnancy is up to 20%. So you can't actually tease out pregnancy and um, non-pregnant reasons for that to happen uh, versus uh, what, uh, what could or could be happening with a vaccination. Um, and the third thing is there, there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there, and pregnant women are just as susceptible as anybody else to them, perhaps even more, because they know that they want to protect their, their baby. Um, so what we have uh, noticed since January, when we actually lobbied the government to allow pregnant healthcare workers to get the vaccination, and that was based on um, the recommendations from every obstetrical society around the world uh, that it appeared to be safe. There was nothing that really stood out. And there was a process in place to monitor women who received vaccination and also to monitor women that had not uh, and all patients that were admitted to hospital. So what we were able to see is that pregnant women who've been vaccinated are much less likely to get the variant of COVID-19. Um, and 
women who have not received vaccination or who are not fully vaccinated are five times more likely than someone fully vaccinated to be admitted to hospital and spend four days or five days longer than the average person. But the really concerning thing is that uh, pregnant women who don't have protection against COVID-19 are 10 times more likely to be admitted to an intensive care unit and to require intensive medical therapies, including long-term ventilation and life support. Um, so one of the things that, and one of the additional things is that we know that COVID-19 infection in significantly increases the risk of stillbirth. Um, premature delivery for mom having high blood pressure and for needing a, an emergency cesarean section. Um, babies are often low birth weight because uh, women have to be sought by intravenous measures if they are in hospital a long time in ICU. And so there is a significant risk of low birth weight for babies and a significant risk for those babies to require neonatal intensive care and potentially even uh, being on a ventilator or breathing tubes themselves. So this is, pregnancy is a really risky time for both mom and baby. Um, and we can do something to prevent this illness. And I think that's the most important point. You addressed the, the myths surrounding miscarriage. What about infertility for those trying to conceive associated with the vaccine? So the infertility uh, information is that we've got is pretty much the same as uh, um, for miscarriage. So, you know, there may be a little bit of an alteration in menstrual pattern for a month or two, uh, but that can happen with any stress. So it's really hard to tease out what would, could be related to vaccination and what isn't. Um, and, you know, if we're looking, for instance, at teenagers, nobody knows what, what's going to be affecting their fertility in another 20, 15 to 20 years. Um, and to think that uh, vaccination that you got now is going to cause you problems down the road in the long term really does not make any sense. Versus women who get COVID-19, um, they actually can have that damage to any number of internal organs. And does it matter in what trimester a pregnant woman receives the shot? They can receive the vaccine in any trimester. Basically, the message has been very clear for pregnant women as for non-pregnant, take the first shot that's available. Now, we're recommending in pregnancy that uh, the, one of the mRNA vaccines be used. Uh, and I think the most supply that we have right now in Canada is the Pfizer vaccine. Um, and that is so that we've had studies that have recently come out from the U.S. monitoring programs that looked at adverse effects and also looked at following women that have received vaccination in a longer term. So there are now uh, uh, 
women who either are pregnant or who have been pregnant that have had the vaccination about 10 months ago. And so we've actually got a lot of data that shows there are no safety concerns. There are no concerns regarding um, abnormalities that uh, may be related to the vaccination. Um, and, uh, you know, all of this is good news. And there's no, in the long-term studies of women that have been vaccinated, they have not uh, developed any other issues like trouble long COVID. The other good thing is that the antibodies that mom makes crosses the placenta into the baby's bloodstream. And those persist until and after birth for about six months. Hmm. And those antibodies protect our babies against the infection as well. Well, you already answered my question there about the antibodies, but I want to ask you then, are there concerns for those who are breastfeeding? I would guess not then. Uh, No, there are no concerns for women that are breastfeeding. We've also identified that uh, maternal antibodies are expressed in breast milk, and uh, so baby will get some, um, uh, some antibodies orally, and those may be the kind of antibodies that will protect the uh, upper airways and hopefully get rid of any virus sooner that might uh, the baby might be exposed to. How can you be so confident? I know that you said that millions have had this vaccine all over the world, but it really hasn't been around that long. So how do you instill that confidence in the pregnant population? Well, when we look at vaccinations in general, mm-hmm. it usually takes several years to mount studies. And they might be in groups of a thousand people here, a thousand people there. Um, this vaccine took worldwide cooperation, and it was there were multiple trials going on in multiple countries around the world uh, using the vaccine and collecting that data. Now, some of those women became pregnant. And they had, did not have any adverse effects uh, on either themselves or the babies. And now that we've got more publications looking more critically at the numbers, following women who've been vaccinated and following adverse events, we're seeing patient enrollment in these studies and numbers we have never seen before in pretty much any drug or vaccination. The other thing to keep in mind, um, the uh, Canadians actually were very uh, strongly involved in the development of messenger RNA vaccinations. And the COVID vaccine is not the first one. It's just that the um, it's been used to develop rarer uh, vaccines for rarer conditions, like the Ebola vaccine a few years ago. It was actually developed out of the... Uh, um, viral labs in um, the level four lab in Winnipeg. And um, so we played a, a huge role, Canadians did, in ending the huge Ebola outbreak that was going on in Africa at the time. Um, and some other conditions have, it's been used to develop vaccinations as well, most of the uh, different viruses. So the technology has been around for. 10 to 15 years, it has been used for vaccination in other circumstances. 
and we have data on more people than we have ever had for any vaccine. So those are the things that really reassure me that um, this vaccine is safe. And in fact, I recommended it to my own pregnant daughter and uh, she couldn't wait to get it. <laughs> we had to wait until she got higher up on the priority list. So it was a relief to her and her friends that were pregnant that got the vaccination that they were not as likely to have a problem in pregnancy with it, with the um, uh, viral infection. Dr. Nacello, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Dr. Constant Nacello is chair of the Ontario Medical Association's Section on Obstetrics and Gynecology. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. And thank you very much for having me, Tina. After the break, food bank use is on the rise. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. Food insecurity, food uncertainty, having to choose between paying your rent or putting food on the table, feeding your children so they have nourishment while you go without. Hunger in Ontario, it is a growing problem. The pandemic is partly to blame, but there are other factors at play. There's been a sharp rise in the number of people accessing just even the basics from food banks in this province. So why is this happening? What needs to be done? What must be done? Neil Hetherington is the CEO of Daily Bread Food Bank, and he joins us now with some answers. Welcome to the show, Neil. Always great to speak with you. And Romer, it's wonderful to be able to uh, to reconnect and to have this conversation, an important conversation. A very important conversation and one that leaves people scratching their heads, wondering why there is such increased hunger in Ontario. What's going on? What's going wrong, Neil? Uh, yeah, well, I guess first, the, the first thing is, you know, what has that escalation been? Um, what are the number of people who are accessing uh, food banks? What we have seen is pre-pandemic numbers in the neighborhood of about uh, 55 to 60,000 client visits per month, which on its own was incredibly problematic. That number now uh, has hit a high of 124,500. So we have more than uh, doubled the number of individuals who are having to access food banks. So your question, why? Why is this happening? Uh, the cost of living is obviously a, uh, a significant contributor, and incomes simply aren't keeping pace with that cost of living in the city. And it's my understanding that that people are, are really just reaching out for the basics. You know, there's this sometimes this misconception about what a food bank is. So maybe we should clear the air right now. What is a food bank? Yeah. What does it offer? And what do most people feel and, and have the right to, to take away with them? Yeah, so food banks, there's, there's about uh, 200 food banks uh, located in the city of Toronto. And in, so in, in pretty well every single neighborhood, there is, there's an opportunity for individuals to get the food that they need for their family. Uh, clients can come once a week, and they're provided with about three days' worth of food, uh, which um, is a help to be able to bridge the gap between what they have and what they need. The uh, most of the food banks now in the city are shopping models. So you would come in, 
And if you're a family of two, maybe you get 200 points and you shop using those points for the food that is culturally appropriate or meets your health uh, conditions and needs and and uh, food that you would enjoy eating. So it's not the model of, you know, the, the, the 1980s and 90s where here's a box of food, whether you like it or not, this is what you're getting. The other interesting uh, fact is that about uh, 50%, just under 50% of what we provide to uh, clients is uh, is fresh food. Um, the, the the long gone are the days where it's it's simply cans and boxes. Instead, it's uh, it's making sure that there's yogurt, there's milk, there's all the basics that um, you and I and have in our fridge. And one of the things that I know very well from working with you and and having interviewed you for many reasons, you were originally with Habitat for Humanity, you're now Daily Bread Food Bank, so you have a great understanding of what it's like to struggle financially uh, based on your work. There is a great deal of respect shown to those who come to the food bank and those who came and when you were at the helm... Habitat for Humanity. I remember your lo- your slogan was a hand up, not a handout. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think you're right in terms of making sure that it is as much uh, a dignified process as, as can be. Think about you know having to make that decision to to say um, I need to to walk through the doorway of a food bank. For many people, that is that's that's a very difficult decision to make. I recall early in the the pandemic, um, walking along the line uh, of individuals who were lined up for food that day, and seeing a um, a friend that I hadn't seen for many years in uh, in line, and he has uh, he was furloughed from his uh, his job. He has five kids, and he just needed to do what he needed to do. And so I, I, I walked up to him, and and we had a great conversation. Um, it was uh, difficult to see him in that circumstance, but he was able to get the, what he needed that day. And more importantly, uh, we were able to make sure that he was able to access the resources he needs. Most of the food banks now not only provide food for today, but they also have information and referral services so that a client who comes in can have access to uh, the different uh, uh, programs that are available through the city to be able to, uh, to make sure that they've got a great pathway to employment or a pathway to affordable housing that uh, allows them to, uh, to, to, to move off of having to, uh, to make use of food banks. What is the responsibility of the three levels of government, in your opinion, municipal, provincial, and federal? Each of those levels of government has uh, a poverty reduction strategy. And uh, and they're, they're they're long documents, and uh, there's there's they're multifaceted. Um, I would say their responsibility is to implement the plans that they've agreed to. The federal government has uh, has a, a a plan to reduce poverty by fifty percent by twenty thirty. It's an ambitious goal, and one that needs to to be put in place. So I would say you know the 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 um, at a high level it's. It's to implement the poverty reduction strategy. At a more sort of like, what does that actually mean kind of level, 
I, I would say three things. One is making sure there's decent, affordable housing built in the city. Uh, that includes everything along the housing continuum from uh, transitional housing, rent gear to income, affordable home ownership, making sure that there is uh, decent, affordable housing built. The second, I, I, I really want to make sure that there are good pathways to good employment. Um, you know, the number of individuals who are relying on the gig economy uh, is, is growing every year, and it means that fewer people have access to, uh, to, to benefits and uh, more people are faced with precarious employment. And then the third one, I would say, would be around income security. Um, it is, you know, individuals who are on disability in the province of Ontario, on average, have a maximum of uh, about $1,050 a month to survive on, to pay for their housing and pay for all of their uh, their, their needs. And, and you just can't make ends meet uh, on that. Um, and so I think that there needs to be a uh, humble review of what uh, uh, we want from, our, you know, how we're espousing our values and implementing them in decent social policies that ensures that nobody who is on disability has to make use of food charity to be able to survive. When we talk about poverty, and really this is what the issue is, where does food insecurity, where does hunger fit in? Is it one of the biggest manifestations when it comes to the overall view of poverty? in Ontario? It, it, it is. I mean, it's, it is a symptom of poverty. So when we talk at the Daily Bread about, you know, what do we want to accomplish, it is the eradication of poverty. And so with that, um, it means that there are no more food banks. It means that there is decent affordable housing. It means that people can thrive in the communities that they're, they're living in. And so, yes, uh, you know, Nick Saul, a, a great guy who, uh, who leads the uh, uh, Canada Food Centers, his quote that I often use is, um, uh, food is not a food problem, it's an income problem. Uh, you know, the food, the lack of food and the, the prevalence of food insecurity is a symptom of incomes not keeping pace with, uh, with the cost of living. So if you look at, you know, what we're going through right now from an inflation perspective, um, food inflation has increased beyond inflation by 20%. Yeah. And, uh, and this year it's, it's, it's set at 7%. Okay. So for the average family of four listening to this, that means about $700 a month more that they're going to spend on food. And, uh, and when the average food bank user has, after paying for rent, $9 a day to survive on, you can imagine the, already, the, the incredible strain on a family that's already burdened. So what can be done? And we've, you've discussed what you would like to see in terms of support from levels of government, but what, what more needs to and has to be done in order for people to survive and also to retain and maintain their dignity? You know, it, it, I think I think it fundamentally boils down into making sure that there is the leadership at all three levels of government that says we recognize the um, the enormity of the problem. 
uh, and we will take the necessary steps to be able to implement successfully our poverty reduction strategies. The strategies have all been built. They've all been done. We, we, we never, ever need to have another roundtable discussion on what should we do to, uh, to get more affordable housing built or what should we do to get uh, income uh, at the level that, uh, that it, it needs to be for people to survive. We know the answers to all these things. It's about is there the political will and leadership to be able to, uh, to make it uh, happen? And um, and so that 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 to me is is fundamental. Getting those poverty reduction strategies uh, implemented, um, and when we do, when we when we have communities thrive, then we have economic development. It's the, the poverty reduction strategies are good economic policies to be able to implement. And. On a community level, you know, I think about, and these are not stopgap measures, but they are ways that people are trying to give back to the community and to help feed the hungry. I think of businessman Mohammed Faki, who just about every Sunday sets up a, a, a kitchen uh, somewhere in the GTA and and dishes out, with the help of great volunteers, food for people who may not have a meal that particular day. And so just on a community level, what more can we do? You know, I think that's a that's a, a, a wonderful. Um, he's he's an incredible leader, community leader who is uh, who's, who's doing uh, everything that he can um, at a uh, community level that I think is is important because it shows uh, leadership and it shows that we can do something. You know, there are there are always ways to you know make uh, financial contributions or food contributions, but I think at a community like at a individual level, you know, listening right now, it, it just phoning your elected official and say the poverty reduction strategy seems like it's an important thing to do. Um, and, and shooting off an email, making a phone call and advocating for, um, uh, for, for those that, that need that, uh, voice. I, I, I often also quote a guy named Brian Stevenson who said that the opposite of poverty is not wealth, but mm. justice. And, and we can all, um, make those calls or send those emails and just say there needs to be a little bit more justice when it comes to how we are, uh, we are, uh, implementing the poverty reduction strategy. Let's talk very quickly about donations. And I learned from you a long time ago that uh, a financial contribution to Daily Bread Food Bank is a big deal because you can stretch a dollar far further than I can. We sure can. And so, you know, we're grateful for everybody who makes a financial contribution. Equally, if somebody makes a food contribution, that's great. Um, you know, I remember very clearly walking in uh, around No Frills with my mom and uh, her saying, listen, why don't you choose a few items that we'll make sure it goes to uh, to the Daily Bread Food Bank. So there, that gift of food is also um, an opportunity for a life lesson for uh, for families. So, you know, any way you give, whether it's uh, uh, through through a donation, through food, or through the gift of your voice through advocacy, it's appreciated. Also, you have developed partnerships with uh, people in agriculture, with farmers around Ontario. Yeah, um, we would never be able to uh, to deliver forty three percent fresh food across the, uh, the the system unless we had partnerships with amazing farmers, and uh, and and through the what's called the private farmers uh, tax bill, we were able to uh, to make sure that uh, farmers benefited from doing good. 
And so as a result, we've got tractor trailers going up and down the highways on a regular basis, picking up fresh fruits and vegetables and making sure that the people who are getting the food from Daily Bread are getting uh, healthy, nutritious uh, food. It's, it's been a great partnership and it's changed us fundamentally in how we operate. So very clearly, how do I donate money? How do I donate food? And where do I take the food that I want to donate? So if you can give me the 411 on that, that would be amazing. All right. <laughs> so real quickly, Every single fire hall um, accepts uh, food 24-7, and there's a fire hall probably in walking distance from everybody's home in, uh, in the city. Uh, so that's a great way to donate, uh, donate food. If you want to uh, make a financial contribution, it's needed now more than ever, um, and that's at dailybread.ca. And then uh, lastly, um, you know, on that same website, there is a section about advocacy, and you can see what are the, what are the positions that, that we think are going to be important so that uh, more and more people can uh, can can uh, uh, remove a dependency on food banks. We are the voice of York Region, so I also encourage our listeners and our followers to check out York Region's food banks and to donate wherever they feel they can and are comfortable and it makes sense, and dollars and cents. Uh, and I think that that's great. And throughout the province, there's a great association called Feed Ontario, which uh, which ensures that uh, that food is equitably distributed, uh, not just uh, you know in the in the GTA and in the region, but um, to our to to those who have incredibly high pr- prices of food up in the far north. Neil Hetherington, CEO, Daily Bread Food Bank. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. And Romer, it's always great to talk to you. The Coding for Veterans Career Caravan is on the road again. Tina, now with the program to retrain our vets. Jeff Musson is the executive director of Coding for Veterans. Thanks for joining the feed, Jeff. Yeah, I know. I appreciate the opportunity. Tell us about the Coding for Veterans program. Yeah, so Coding for Veterans is a program that helps Canada's military veterans retrain for jobs in Canada's tech sector, both in cybersecurity, and software development. And the program's delivered 100% online through the University of Ottawa. Is it an Ontario-only program? No, it's open um, to any um, uh, men and women from Canada's military from coast to coast because when it's delivered online, um, you know, the opportunities, as long as you have a strong internet connection and a desire for a career in, in tech, um, you can take the learning anywhere. So is this the first time you've gone national? Yeah, so it's interesting. With our Coding for Veterans Career Caravan, um, we, we, it is the first time we've gone national, but it's built upon a career caravan that we did last year. And the reason why we are you know, going from coast to coast, visiting various uh, cities, uh, military bases, is prior to COVID, we um, we would end up uh, going to Canada's military bases and specifically their job fairs. They now obviously have been uh, shut down because of COVID. So we've partnered with Canadian legions across the country in order to deliver the message and opportunities to enroll in our program directly to military veterans in a socially distanced uh, manner. So is the career caravan almost like a recruitment tour? 
Yeah, absolutely. A, a recruitment tour, a promotion tour, and there's really two targeted markets for it. Number one, obviously, military uh, veterans, um, but also employers, because employers also should you know, be aware of the value that someone who served in our military can bring to their organization. And what's great is, is that our program has really expanded this past year to now we have included military spouses and family members uh, within our cohorts. And where Veterans Affairs has paid for the tuition for military veterans to enroll in our program, we actually went back to our corporate partners, and they are paying the tuition through bursaries for military veterans, spouses, and family members to be in the program. Because in Canada, we have a shortfall of about 147,000 IT jobs that are projected to go unfilled in the next 12 to 18 months. Well, that's terrific. And especially because we've heard, because of the pandemic, there is a greater need or call for IT specialists. Yeah, and we see that demand continuing to grow as more, you know, people have now permanently started working from home. Um, the demand for IT software, cybersecurity uh, specialists has increased. And what's interesting is, you know, we when you we look at the program and the opportunities for the men and women in our military, you know, we like saying they went from protecting Canada on the battlefield to now doing it in cyberspace. And mm. so it makes for a nice um, transition to civilian life for these men and women that have served in uniform. Well, speaking of transition, then, how many men and women leave the armed forces every year? And how do they transition to that civilian life? Yeah, so every year, between eight and 10,000 people leave the military. And as part of that transition, you know, some will just retire. However, the vast majority still have a lot of their working years ahead of them. And typically in the past, a fit, you know, uh, for someone leaving the military would be going into policing or going into security guard or, or what have you. What we are saying with our coding for veterans um, opportunity is, when you look at the soft skills that someone from our military has, you know, things like attention to detail, leadership, um, teamwork, those are the soft skills that the most successful people in the IT industry have. And so really the whole premise on the program is, is can you identify out of those people leaving the military who want a career and have an aptitude for a tech, um, you know, sector job? And then partner in with the University of Ottawa in which to deliver the curriculum and to start filling the, the open jobs that are in, in Canada in the tech sector. And do you hear from the graduates of this program? You know, what do they share about the program or their lives outside the military? Yeah, so what's what's been interesting is we've now had uh, a number of graduates um, leave our program. And what's interesting is, is that a couple of them have actually came back as instructors now in our program, which is kind of cool. Um, and then others out there, they, you know, they're very thankful. And, and meanwhile, we should be thanking them for doing the service, but they had never contemplated a career in IT until they heard about our program. 
And now the, they're able to support themselves and their families in good-paying jobs. And they also, especially in the area of cybersecurity, still have a sense of mission, um, which really allowed them or was, was the impetus for them to join the military to protect Canada. And they can still continue to do that, but in the cyber area. And Jeff, what about for you? Why did you want to be involved in this program? Yeah, so what was interesting is I actually come from the tech sector. Mm. And, you know, uh, and in fact, I own a software company. So I'm acutely aware of the shortage of talent uh, in this sector. And it was, you know, through that, you know, firsthand knowledge that I wanted to be able to bring a solution to the table um, to start helping, you know, the tech ecosystem. And what's interesting is when you actually looked at those men and women from our military, I thought, wow, what a great opportunity to provide um, them and their families an ability to earn a good salary with a career that has a longevity. And quite frankly, you know, we talked about it earlier, these jobs have increased. And so when you look at the pandemic and, and how it's really decimated of various sectors out there, the tech sector has survived and not only survived, but growing. So what I get out of it is, is really an ability to, you know, bring people together with a common cause and, and in a way thank our men and women of the military for their service by helping them transition into stable civilian employment. So here we are the weekend before Remembrance Day. Where is the next stop for the Coding for Veterans career caravan? Yeah, so um, for the past two months, we have actually traveled across Canada from coast to coast and have stopped in at uh, just about 30 different locations. Um, We will be wrapping up the career caravan in Ottawa on Remembrance Day. And... um, you know, I can't think of a more fitting place in which to conclude the uh, our caravan tour, but in our nation's capital, thanking the men and women who have, um, you know, sacrificed uh, for our country. Jeff, if our listeners want more information, where can they find it? Yeah, they can go to our website, www.codingforveterans.com, or they can follow us on uh, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram as well. Jeff Musson is the Executive Director of Coding for Veterans. Thanks for joining us on the feed. Thanks. I appreciate the opportunity. When we come back, York U's oldest master's degree graduate. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. She's a mother, a grandmother, and now this Vaughn resident is the oldest person ever to graduate from York University with a master's degree. Jim Lang with The Graduate. Now, let me tell you, the next time you have kids that say, Mom, Dad, I don't feel like studying, I want to tell you the story about an amazing individual from Vaughn, Varatha Shanmuganathan, who made history This week at 87, receiving her master's degree at York University, the oldest person ever to get a master's at York, and she joins us on the feed. Varatha, congratulations. How are you? Uh, Thank you. I am fine today. Yesterday was a hectic day. All the media people were... (laughs) 
in my house. <laughs> okay. Well, you, you, you're that's good. Okay. Well, let's. You're 87, so obviously you started studying and matriculating for your masters in your 80s. In education, you've said has always been a big part of your life. But why in your 80s did you think, you know what, I'm going to get my master's degree? <laughs> okay, uh, it should have been my PhD. Oh, because I have a master's degree from London University, England. Uh, I got it in 1990. Mm. Uh, from that time onwards, uh, I was looking uh, for a university where I could go and do my PhD in political science because politics and political science has been part of my, uh, what should I say, academic um, education. I did politics in uh, for my intermediate uh, and throughout my life I was interested in politics. Uh, you know, if I had been in my home country, I would have become one of the honest politicians. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, your your story, your journey to this is it, it reads like a movie. Uh, born in Sri Lanka, spent time in Africa and England. Um, you've been to Ethiopia. You have seen stuff that we have only read about or seen in movies, you've experienced it firsthand in your journey to this master's degree you just completed at York. <laughs> yeah, it has been uh, a migration story, shall I call it that way, or uh, because uh, we were, my husband was at that time uh, jobless uh, in the sense because uh, the single uh, only act was passed. Uh, he could not teach in Singhalese. He was a teacher in a, at a place where uh, Singhalese uh, was uh, more prevalent. Uh, not a, uh, it is uh, in the south. Uh, uh, yeah. So he lost his job as soon as this uh, 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 Singhala only official language act was passed by the Prime Minister Bandarnaika. So he lost his job. He was uh, without a job for some time. In 1969, a group of uh, educators from Ethiopia came and uh, recruited teachers. Yeah, they brought their own airplane and uh, wow. took uh, nearly 100 teachers uh, to Addis Ababa and gave jobs to them. Sri Lankan, mostly Sri Lankan Tamils, some Sinhalese also went. So he, my husband went to Ethiopia to teach in 1969. I was uh, um, pregnant at that time, so I joined him in 1972 after I retired from my job in Sri Lanka. That is how my journey started in Africa. Both of us, we were moving from Ethiopia at the time when political crisis was uh, taking place in Ethiopia. We were there, 1975, when Haile Selassie was overthrown. So then we went to Sierra Leone for two years. There also, I had the chance of meeting uh, Yaka Stevens, uh, who was the leader at that time. He was a famous leader because he led uh, that country to independence. So I met him in my school. I shook hands with him. 
Wow. And at this point, I'm reminded of another thing. You know, when Obama became president? Yes. Before he became president, he was coming to the university where my son is working. So I went there and listened to his speech, campaign speech, at Toledo University, and shook hands with him also. And as an elderly person or senior person, I took both his hands and said, you will be the next president of the United States. <laughs> and you were right. I remember all this. And also, when we were in Ethiopia, uh, we had a luncheon, lunch with the, um, uh, the leader, the king of, uh, I mean, the leader who, who was overthrown at that time. Um, so... I had this experience, and uh, I wanted to share with you. I don't know if I'm going no. beyond what No, Varatha, <laughs> it's wonderful. And I, I because I think about a lot of your fellow students in your master's program, they're probably a lot younger than you. And, you know, it's often people... Oh, it's too hard. I don't want to put the work in. And then I saw, I would be in the class and look at you and what you've been through and your life and what you're achieving and go, I have no excuse. I want to be better. I'm sure you inspired a lot of your fellow students to get at it and get the work done. And not only that, they were supporting me, I should say, but I want to tell the seniors, don't shy away from education. When you get an opportunity... If you have a lot of money, put some money in and go. Otherwise, York University is offering fee waiver for seniors after the age of 62. Oh. Oh, why do you wait? Go for it. That's what I'm telling my friends and others, seniors. Well, seniors, I have, my wife and I have two daughters in university, and anytime they complain about work, Varatha, we're telling them their, your story and go, girls, there's this amazing woman from Vaughn who's 87, who made history as the oldest person to get a master's degree at York, and you have no excuse, and you are so right. This is my second degree. In fact, I wanted to do my PhD, I thought. Yeah. It's a bit late, and I can't be hanging on. I should finish the job and do my other work that is writing a book. Well, that's that's the last thing I was going to ask you. Now you want to write a book. I can't wait to read about it. What's it going to be about? Ah, it is all about. This is political science, and I was uh, doing my MRP, major research project uh, paper. I wrote uh, on the causes of Sri Lanka, of the Sri Lankan civil war and uh, post war prospects for peace in Sri Lanka. Uh, write a book on. And uh, you will find uh, a bit of history of Sri Lanka and also prospects for peace. What is happening in Sri Lanka post-war period? And is there anything there to catch on to bring back peace to that country? The war is over, but uh, peace is not there. You know, peace is an event. It, is, uh, uh, it has to be felt and not seen. So... I agree. Yeah. It's, it sounds like it'll be a fascinating book. You are an incredible inspiration, an incredible person. I hope you keep getting more degrees and write more books and just keep on going, Varatha, because we are huge yeah, fans I of yours. Think, You're awesome. I speak to the young people, the old people, and whoever wants to hear my story. It is a 
story of my life. Thank you so much. We're, we just love the heck out of you. You're awesome. All the best and continue great success. Thank you. Bye-bye now. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.